The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, chorus. And we are live. It's time. Hello everyone, it's February 2nd, 2022, a lot of twos in the date today. It is 5.01 p.m. and Ben and I are here with the wonderful Catherine Rampell. How are you, Catherine? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So, I have to uh, start um, by uh, uh, telling you all that when I announced, this is the second time I have announced that Catherine Rampell is going to be on the show, and both times... I get these gleeful tweets in response um, because there's just a lot of you out there who uh, really uh, love Catherine Rampell, which I, I, I am sympathetic to because I'm a big fan of her work. But I just want to say she gets an enthusiasm from in response that a lot of How guests... many of those enthusiastic responses are from people directly related to me? Well, I don't know. They're, none of them are from people with the name Rampel. So, you know, like, maybe it's like your mom with like a lot of different personas on Twitter. Could be. But, I wouldn't put it faster. But uh, so, look, we're not allowed to have fun anymore. And um, but we are allowed to have Catherine Rampel to talk to us about the actual state of the economy. And I wanted to have Catherine on the show because I am perplexed by a paradox of the current economy, which is that on one set of metrics, it seems to be chugging along uh, in like an excited little engine that could. It's uh, high economic growth. It's producing a lot of jobs. And on the other hand, you have these persistent supply chain issues, inflation, and um, uh, uh, the perception among very large numbers of members of the public that the economy sucks. And um, so I want you to resolve that discrepancy and explain to me what the econ- how is this economy really? Is it economy number one or is it economy number two? The answer is yes. <laughs> it, is, it is both. I'm sorry, it's not a satisfying answer. Uh, basically, the economy is running hot, meaning that um, there has been a lot of fiscal stimulus, there's been a lot of monetary stimulus, and that has had um, some of its intended consequences and some of its some unintended consequences. The intended consequences are GDP growth is way up, um, incomes are way up, spending is way up job growth has been pretty strong. It's gotten, it's faltered a little bit in the last couple of months, seemingly because of COVID stuff. Um, But unemployment, which is another way of measuring how the job market is doing, that's come down way faster than had been predicted. Um, And and again, those are the intended consequences of expansionary uh, policy, fiscal policy and monetary policy. But there is a risk when you uh, juice the economy that you end up having demand um, boosted so much so quickly that supply can't keep up. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of demand for workers, but they can't hire them quickly enough. You Mm -hmm. still have these problems with supply chains in the United States and all over the world. Um, And so uh, there's a lot of people willing to spend money because of all of, in part because of all of these policies that I was talking about, you know, stimulus checks, among other things, and there isn't enough stuff for them to buy relative to how much they want. Um, and so the, the supply chain can't adapt quickly enough. You're still mm-hmm. having lots of disruptions. And the result is that that bids up prices. It, we have shortages of things. We have higher prices for the things that are available. Um, and so, you know, you get inflation and you get low unemployment. And to some extent, um, this is policy working sort of as, as as it was supposed to, or at least it was a knowable risk. 
that if you run the economy hot, you might have more inflation. Most economists a year ago didn't think we would have this much inflation. They thought that, um, you know, you would have some hiccup, some, some supply chain hiccups early on, but they would un unwind themselves in part because we were going to get high levels of vaccination. Uh, people were going to be able to go back to work. People were going to have consumers were going to have money to spend and the uh, and producers would be able to accommodate that demand. And that hasn't happened. Um, so um, those several factors combined, you know, persistent problems in supply chains and really high demand have, have led to this higher inflation. And as you point out, um, if you look at survey data on how do people evaluate the economy, they are definitely weighting the inflation numbers much more heavily than they're weighting all of the um, good stuff that I mentioned, which is mm -hmm. obviously to the great frustration of President Biden and, and Democrats like Biden's out there saying like, look how good things are. You know, we have job growth and we have GDP growth and all of that. Why is everybody focusing on the bad stuff? Um, and I think it's because people, well, I, I can go, I, I've talked a lot. Because you buy I, things more often than you change jobs. Yeah, it's like in, even when unemployment is high, mm -hmm. um, it still affects primarily a, a small sliver of the population. Those people are in uh, are suffering a lot, but it's like very concentrated pain. Maybe there are a lot of people who are worried about losing their jobs. So it's not like people who are still employed are completely untouched by um, by bad stuff happening in the labor market. But it's much more concentrated, whereas the pain felt by inflation is a little more diffuse. Um, more people feel it. And I think it also has this sort of um, unsettling effect of like, well, will it continue? Um, maybe my wages have gone up and we can talk a little bit about what's happened with wages relative to inflation. Um, maybe my wages have gone up some, but I think inflation is going to continue. And so my standard of living is going to keep falling, keep falling and keep falling over the next year, even if I still have a job. Um, and so it's more people feel it. I think some part, some price increases are really salient, like gas prices, people, it's very weird. Like People focus so much on gas prices um, relative to almost any, any other price change. And it's to some extent, it's rational. To some extent, it's irrational. It's rational in the sense that like you can't really change your driving habits. For mo most people can't change their driving habits that much, right? If mm -hmm. like the price of beef goes up, you can substitute away and buy more chicken or more vegetarian meals or whatever. If gas prices go up, you can't most of the time you can't just say, well, I'm, I'm not going to drive to work anymore uh, or whatever. Um, so, so people can't adapt as much. And, you know, you see the big price sign on highway every time you leave the house. And so it is just much more salient. It's a little bit irrational in the sense that like um, people are really attached to the the nominal price in, in historical terms, gas prices are not that high when you like adjust for all the other price right. changes, but you tell people that and they think that you're like gaslighting them, <laughs> no, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so uh, so people are, are really fixated on certain numbers in particular and they're really mad about them. Um, and, and I think that that colors their views of everything else going on in the economy that's arguably pretty good. So can I, pivot a little bit just to talk about the messaging that you brought up because from where I sit depending on what news source I've listened to today it's all President Biden's fault or President Biden's going to fix this so at the root cause we have this one message that puts the power to fix this solely in the executive seat is that true is that no. not true why are we here? <laughs> Probably the thing that I say most often in my writing and in interviews and other media is the president gets too much credit when the economy is good and too much blame when the economy is bad. Yes. Um, it's like, I feel like I say this at least once a week. Um, and so it, I think it is true that fiscal policy, meaning um, the laws that Congress passes and that the president signs have contributed to inflation. If you look at the American Rescue Plan, I think in retrospect, it was way too big um, and, and not designed particularly well. I supported it at the time because there were parts of it that I thought were really important, even if there were parts that I was lukewarm on. I've since become much cooler on it just because I think 
we can we can talk a little bit more about it. But I, I, I the inflationary effects I think are going to have uh, much more harmful political effects um, for for other things, other parts of the Biden agenda that I do support. But in any event, um, yes, I think that that contributed to the high price increases that we've seen. But it's not the only thing. As I said, supply chain issues uh, have been a problem around the world. Inflation has also been high in the eurozone, for example, and uh, it's not as high there as it is here. And that's probably reflected. That, that's partly due, probably partly due to the fact that they didn't have as as aggressive a fiscal policy intervention as we did. But but like everywhere in the world, it seems was going to ha- was going to be affected by COVID, by the reopening of the economy, by this sort of mismatch of consumers being ready to spend, coupled with um, supply chains really not really not being able to adapt. And the other the other element in all of this that I haven't mentioned, which again is not Biden's fault, is that the things we spend money on has shifted as well, because it's still relatively high risk to go to restaurants, to travel, to go to a concert, et cetera, services. So we have all this money to spend, partly because of stimulus, partly because, um, you know, job growth and wage growth have been pretty strong. And we're we're spending more money overall, but we're also changing the composition of what we spend um, and spending more on goods like Ben's hammock. Right. Um, so which is a pandemic purchase. That's what I'm saying, but it, like maybe uh, not everybody bought a hammock. But if you look at other everyone should, they should. handmade I, I, Latvian hammocks on 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 uh, Etsy. Uh, they're wonderful. They're uh, made by, you know, country under Russian threat. Um, so buy a Latvian handmade hammock. No, just to footstop Catherine's point. Not only am I sitting in a pandemic uh, uh, purchase product, staring at several others, a ring light, a camera, mm-hmm. a screen, but I have uh, last week started teaching again up in Boston. And so I've been flying up to Boston once a week. The airports are empty. The flights are empty. The hotels are empty. And so you can really see the... Uh, you know, gap between uh, things we used to spend money on and things we now spend money on. They're tangible goods that you can like put in your pandemic cave, uh, not travel, not vacations, not. And they're but but the point is that they're exactly the same things that are having difficulty getting through supply chains. Right. right. I mean, I guess your hammock. I, I don't know what the situation on the ground. There was is. no in hammock Latvia. supply chain problem in Latvia, as best as I can okay. tell. I ordered it. It showed up. But <laughs> if everybody I proselytize about the hammock to goes and orders one, you could imagine a run on, a run on Latvian hammocks and then things would get ugly. Well, in China, you know, a lot of the the physical goods that Americans buy are imported from China. China has had really strict COVID protocols. They had this zero COVID strategy where if there's one case, they shut down the whole port where they shut, you know, they might lock down an entire city still, as I understand it, this is happening. So um, that means, you know, a factory can't operate, a port can't operate. And so the, the very things that we are trying to buy more of um, are much more constrained in, in how much more supply can be produced. Um, again, this is not Biden's fault. Um, so I don't want to like completely absolve the policy choices he's made, but there are these much bigger factors at play that I think are, are um, you know, a very big deal. And so I've been frustrated by both the the drumbeat of like, thanks, Biden, you, you know, you're responsible for high- like, gas prices. Another good example of this, you know, gas prices are driven by global markets. Um, Biden can't control them. This is always bedeviled presidents. Presidents always get blamed for uh, high gas prices. And they, they, you know, have some sort of like window dressing about we're going to release some barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but it'll be like a day's worth of supply. It's not going to be enough to, you know, change prices that much. So on the one hand, you have people complaining, it's all Biden's fault. And the White House, I think, has struggled with how to message on all of this. Um, you know, again, they could they could emphasize all of the other good stuff happening in the economy, and they've tried to do that. 
that can come off as a little bit tone deaf. Like, why are you talking about, you know, all of the fast food workers who are getting hired or whatever when um, I can't afford groceries anymore or, or you know, my gas bill, my, uh, you know, my fill up my tank, it's, it's much more expensive or whatever. Um, so it, it can come off as a little tone deaf and out of touch. Um, alternatively, they could say, uh, sorry, like this is the cost of doing, you know, of running the economy hot. It'll be worth it in the long run. Just trust us. I don't, the public doesn't seem to want to buy that narrative either. So instead they've been taking this route of being like, you know, you're right. We can control prices. I mean, they don't say it ex in exactly those words, but they have been taking credit for price declines, for example, in gas, which went down briefly. Um, around the time that like the big Omicron outbreaks were happening, which I thought was a super risky strategy for them to take. Right, like, because then when they tick back up again, yes, you're yes. responsible for that too. I mean, not that this ever stopped Trump, right? Trump would take credit for um, anything good happening in the economy and then just stay completely mum when that, you know markets go up. Yay, that must be Trump. Markets go down. Oh, like let's let's. Talk okay, about but, the, but there is an actor who's responsible for this policy lever, and it's the Fed. Yes. And um, I guess my question is, um, okay, so the economy is running a little bit hot. Um, not a lot hot. You know, it's inflation's in the 6% range rather than, you know, some of us are old enough to remember when that was okay. Um and um, it's a it's a little hot, and uh, but it's a little hot getting out of a pretty deep trough, um, and so I had thought the traditional policy response to this is monetary policy, yes, um, and not presidential action, and so my question is, as you look at the next year, the Fed has basically said we're going to inch up interest rates over the next uh, few cycles. Uh, that, will, uh, that will slow things down a little bit. And I guess the question is, if you're Powell, what's the, what are the factors that you're considering there? Is it that you don't want to do it so quickly that you, you know, uh, reduce employment? What like what, what? Why not just put your finger on the brakes a little bit? Well, they are going to. I mean, they've signaled that they're going to raise interest rates probably at least three times this year. The latest forecasts from a, you know a lot of these Wall Street economists um, suggest that they'll um, stomp on the brakes more than that. You know, maybe they'll raise them every time that they meet, like you know seven times this year or whatever. Um, so, so the expectation is that yes, the Fed is going to um, reel back in <laughs> some of that stimulus, stomp on the brakes, whatever the right metaphor is. Um, I think the fear that they have felt so far is that they don't want to derail the recovery. Um, as I said, we've had a lot of job growth, and that's great, but we're still several million jobs below the number that existed when the pandemic first hit. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty about how future, you know, the, the path of the pandemic um, and whether there will be future variants, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that they, they wanted to give the economy the opportunity to recover and not um, like suddenly withdraw all of this support, monetary support, um, you know, be, in part because they, they also predicted that inflation would be temporary, that it would be driven by these very um, tr transitory was the specific term that they used, as you may, you know, you may have flashbacks to all the coverage about transitory inflation, but the, they thought that it was going to, um, it was, it, you know, that the, the, the pressures that were causing inflation would unwind themselves as people got vaccinated and things got back to normal. Um, and so it, it, there wasn't this great urgency to, to you know, re-anchor expectations uh, about inflation. They thought that everybody was like, okay, we all agree inflation is going to be a blip and then it'll go back to normal. The risk is... Um, 
that expectations do change, that, that people start to anticipate more inflation and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So like if I'm a business owner and I expect that my costs are going to go up, I'm going to preemptively raise my prices. Um, or if I'm a worker and I expect my cost of living is going to go up, going to go up I'm going to demand higher wages. Um, and higher wages are normally a great thing, but if they're like only keeping up with inflation and like prices and wages and prices and wages are just kind of like inching past each other, that's that's called the the, the um, wage price spiral that you don't that's the situation you don't want to get in. And it's basically caused by the fact that um, expectations become de-anchored, to use the term of art. So the Fed has been trying to do this sort of delicate balance between okay, how worried are we about job growth? How worried are we about, you know, how, like how sticky these, this, this inflation will be? And do, does the general public seem to believe that it'll be temporary? Because if they believe it's temporary, it can be temporary or it can be transitory. And that hasn't happened, you know, like in retrospect, right. a lot of these forecasts were wrong. And um, I'm sure there'll be lots of dissertations written about why. Some of it's about the fact that the path of the pandemic has changed. You know, people didn't get vaccinated in the same at the same um, levels that had been hoped a year ago, and all of that has exacerbated a lot of the those underlying problems with supply chains. Um, so the the Fed's job now is to try to like convince the public that they have it under control. Um, and that if you believe that they're going to stomp on the brakes, then they almost don't need to stomp on the brakes quite as violently, if that makes sense. Um, because as I said, it's, it's largely an expectations game. If you think the Fed is not going to let prices get out of control, then they don't need to do as much to keep prices from getting out of control, if that makes sense. So just kind of that's so interesting. I know so very little about this, so I'm very excited about this conversation. Um, but I did, I did want to ask you just a little bit about the political realities and just how this is going to possibly affect the, the midterm elections. And I, I think that the messaging, and I'm sorry to circle back to this again, but it just how could, can Democrats really, what would be your suggestion to them to get the messaging under control, to educate the public? Because we've seen... And just as a parallel, in terms of public health, in terms of infrastructure, sometimes there's a little bit of muddling on the messaging there. And it's sometimes not as clear as it should be. What should they do, in your opinion? Um, I, I think it is unhelpful for them to, con to continue promising that they will do things that will reduce prices. And that's the strategic petroleum reserve stuff that I was talking about. They've also, you know, been sort of um, they've, they've held all of these press conferences and released statements about how they're going, they're having all these antitrust interventions and that's going to bring down prices and whatever the merits of those antitrust interventions may be. And I support some of them. They're not going to, they're, they're not an effective tool for dealing with inflation, particularly in the near term. Like, okay, maybe you can introduce more competition into the meat processing industry, but like, that's not going to affect meat prices overnight you know it did seem like a very odd thing and specific thing to focus on. well because there is pretty widespread agreement that that industry well that, that that industry has gotten much more consolidated so like that's been sort of a hobby horse of a lot of economists and antitrust enthusiasts or whatever you want to call them for a while so it's like on the one hand the, the when i've had conversations with people at the white house about this and i'm like come on are, are you guys really proclaiming that you're going to deal with inflation through antitrust they're like no 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 we don't say that we 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 are very targeted we merely imply it we are very tar we talk about you know um meat processing and we talk about whatever like eyeglasses or whatever I, like very specific industries where yes there has been a lot of consolidation um but then the headline that gets published or, you know, the press release that they put out is like Biden is reducing prices through antitrust, blah, 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 blah. So I think I, I don't know. I, I they they my impression is that they think this stuff is justified because, um, you know, the merits of those policies are such that even if they have no effect on inflation, they're worth doing. And, and maybe that's true. But I just think it's like a, a very poor messaging choice. Um, so I'll, so I've, I've begun by talking about the things that, that I think they shouldn't do. They're obviously not listening to me. 
Um, in terms of what they could do, um, again, this is really the Fed's job. The, the Fed has a dual mandate set by Congress of maximum employment and stable prices. This is what the Fed is supposed to be doing. And I think that uh, the White House basically needs to step out of the way. Um, and sometimes they do that. You know, they'll, Biden or others in the White House will say, we don't comment on the Fed. It's politically independent. And that's the, that's those are the right lines. You know, that this is not what we heard from Trump, for example. Right. Trump was like repeatedly trying to strong arm the Fed into producing economic conditions that he thought were more politically favorable. And this White House has been like, no, we're not going to do that. Now, they took a really long time to name their choices for the Fed board. Um, one of there, there are currently um, three, I'm thinking. So Powell, Brainerd, and then there are three other people who are, um, Powell and Brainerd are already on the Fed board. They're, they're you know, there's awaiting confirmation votes for the chair and vice chair titles in yes. Powell is the currently the chair he's he's up for another term but they're already in their their main jobs they already have a vote on the Fed board there are three other vacancies um, that Biden just really dragged his feet in naming people for and the people he named um, who, who he nominated I think within the last couple of weeks, I, I lose track of time, but very recently, since the new year, um, they seem fine. Um, I, I don't like have major objections to them, but I don't know why it took him so long to come up with names. And I think if he really prioritized inflate, you know, getting inflation under control, maybe he would have nominated people who were known for being like super hawks on inflation. And that would have accomplished Sent the thing that I would- yeah, that would, would have accomplished the thing that I was just talking about, that if people credibly believe that the Fed is not going to tolerate more inflation, then the Fed almost doesn't need to be as aggressive because, like, people already adjust their behavior in anticipation of the Fed being aggressive. Um, the people that Biden has appointed, um, or excuse me, has nominated, they are... I don't know that they're known as like being super dovish, but they don't they don't have that same kind of reputation. Um, so that could have been something he he could have done. I mean, the White House had other priorities. They wanted to, um, you know, add people to the Fed who had different uh, different backgrounds. You know, there had never been a black woman on the Fed, for example, and, and Biden has nominated the first black woman to serve on the the Fed board. And and I think th those kinds of objectives are also important we should have more diversity of experience in those jobs but again like if the thing you were really prioritizing was um uh getting inflation under control he could have chosen like right. some you know much more hardline republican some droggy like place. figure yeah right <laughs> and, um, and maybe that would have been the wrong choice i don't know I'm, so I, like i said I'm, I'm i'm not trying to i'm not not necessarily trying to be down on the people he did choose but that could have been a, a he could have done there are other things that biden could have done that would have made some difference like around the edges on inflation so um he could have repealed a bunch of tariffs which uh you know have the effect of making prices higher it, so that would have that would be a one-time price decrease if we repealed a lot of the tariffs on chinese yeah, goods and for that matter canadian you know and, yes. and our allies goods right and and the administration has renegotiated some steel and aluminum uh, trade constraints with uh, with the EU and I think also with Japan. Um, but there there are other there are new restrictions, so it's I don't know that it has that big of a an effect. But in any event, they they could repeal more tariffs. There's a lot more that could be done on immigration, frankly, uh, which is sort of the third rail. In, in some sense for this administration. Um, the number of new people coming into this country just plummeted over the last few years. It had been trending down for the first few years under Trump and, uh, and continued going down through the pandemic, including under Biden. I think immigration fell by like two thirds between 2017 and 2021. And a lot of those people have jobs. Um, and if we have labor shortages right now, we could, you know, 
we, we could use more immigrant workers, but it's a very impolitic thing to say, and they're, right. they're never going to say that. There are also a so, lot of immigrants here who have who have lost their legal, they're already here legally, they were working, they've lost their ability to work because the immigration agency is so screwed up and can't process their paperwork. So there are like things that, that Biden could do that would not be as effective as like reducing the money supply, um, which is the Fed's job, and Biden has been unwilling to do them. So I have a very loud dog in the background, but okay. um, uh, I want to go back to the stupidity of the messaging question, okay. because it seems to me that there's a fairly simple, quite apart from the policy levers at its disposal, there's a very simple message that Biden could be delivering in the, you know, now with respect to midterm economics, which is, number one, the pandemic, you know, things are not going to regularize until the pandemic is over. Yeah. The pandemic went on longer than we wanted it to. And now it seems to be ebbing, God willing, and um, we're doing everything we can. But uh, when Omicron fades... Uh, regular economic order of that is when we will return to something like regular order. Um, number two, uh, inflation is high. The Fed has announced what it is going to do. It will take a few months for that to bring things under control. My commitment is to make sure that uh, you know job creation does not fade along with inflation. And we have a strong base of economic growth to drive those three things happening together, which is inflation reduction, uh, the return to regular economic order following COVID, and the maintenance of strong job creation. I think we're in a very good position to do that. And you'll be seeing the fruits of it over the next few months. And my question is, would that be an overly optimistic view for him to take? Or is that a reasonable set of expectations for him to set? I think that was pretty close to the messaging we heard about a year ago um, from Biden. You know, that it right. Was well, like, it was obviously premature a year ago. Right. Uh, well, we didn't know we were going to have these variants. Right. Uh, there was a lot of focus on getting people vaccinated. That was going uh, addressing the public health crisis would deal would uh, have the effect of helping fix the economic crisis. I think that's still the case. The pandemic is still in, in control of the economy. But Biden um, talked about how we can get back to normal. We can have, what, what was it? There was going to be like a big July 4th yeah, or something, uh, you know? July 4th, uh, independence from the pandemic day. Yeah. And there was an economic angle to all of that messaging which I think was reasonable for him to make. Now, he couldn't have anticipated, of course, that we would have these variants. And I think he couldn't have anticipated that there was going to be so much organized opposition to vaccination and, and, and misinformation about vaccination. Um, and uh, that has obviously slowed down. Um, it's it slowed down our ability to normalize. If right, people but, don't get but, vaccinated. And it's funny because Republicans use this against him. They're like, well, Biden promised that he would get the pandemic under control. Also, vaccines will kill you and you shouldn't take them. And right. I mean, I can't blame I, him for you. you, you know? Right. It's, it's can't like don't don't do what he says. And it's outrageous that he hasn't implemented his policy more effectively. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I guess I look at it and I say the public is good. If, if the theory is right. The public is going to be very forgiving of it taking six to seven months longer to operationalize than the administration originally contended. Um, I, I would think. I, I mean, if 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 we're in the fall of 2022 and the economy is humming along, inflation is well under control, and uh, you My know, cat people has joined us, I apologize. and your cat has joined us and um never apologize uh, you know people aren't going to say yeah but this happened 
over the spring of 2022, not over the summer of 2021. Yes, memories are short. I, I think what ma- what will probably matter to voters in terms of their view of the economy is not how annoyed they were in November of 2021 or whatever. I think it'll be how, how do they feel? How are their finances going into the election? Do they have a job? Have they gotten a raise in real terms? Has inflation gotten under control? Uh, I think that's totally fair. One risk that um, I didn't explicitly mention when I was talking about the Fed, like why the Fed may not slam on the brakes more quickly that I should have mentioned, is that there is a real risk that doing that could send us into a recession. It's not just that it would like uh, squelch job growth, like we could have lots of job losses. Historically, that is the risk when, I mean, this is what happened with Volcker, right? Like Volcker jacked up interest rates to get- Right, but Joker, Volcker jacked up interest rates to like 15%. I yes. mean, you know, it was, he intentionally created a recession by way of getting much higher inflation than this under control. We're talking about a half a percent here and there. Right, but- this economy feels so fragile. Well, I think this e- ninety-seven more percent news cycle. Well, I, I think this economy feels very fragile. There are all of these unpredictable forces about what's going to happen with the pandemic and um, how are consumers going to react to different things. How are businesses going to react? Are we going to have uh, a new variant? And you know, is China going to shut down production? Whatever. Like, there are so many other. I'm sure the, the economy always feels complicated, but it feels very complicated in, in novel, like in novel ways right now. Um, and so I think the Fed is worried about sending us into a recession because historically that has been the risk. And there are just so many unknowns right now about like, well, is the economy healthy enough to, subs- to, to sustain higher interest rates? And will higher interest rates, how will that affect the supply chain issues, right? Like the, the mechanism that that by which higher interest rates deal with inflation is that they they kind of like turn down demand. If it becomes more expensive to borrow, if your credit card interest rate goes up, if your car loan interest rate goes up or your mortgage interest rate goes up, it means you can buy less stuff because it's it'd be, you know, it, it just the, the cost of spending goes up essentially. So people end up pulling back on their spending. So the main mechanism by which interest rates will deal with inflation is by reducing demand. Now, it also can have an effect on supply. So if you're a business and you're like, wow, there's all this demand for my product, I should expand and suddenly it becomes more costly to borrow. Um, what effect does that have on your ability to expand, to hire more people, to buy a new you know, factory or whatever, buy more capital equipment? Um, so again, we're like in this weird confluence of factors right now. And that's part of the reason I think the Fed has been timid, even as we've seen inflation month after month after month come in higher than forecasted, like it wasn't transitory, you know, they thought it was gonna be transitory in whatever it was like spring of last year, it's going to be gone by the summer. Okay, it's going to be gone by the fall, it's going to be gone by the winter, that didn't happen. And there was this fear that well, like, if we step in too soon, then is that going to screw everything else up? Um, is the economy really strong enough to handle that? Are we going to still see hiring? Are we going to still see expansion of businesses, et cetera? Um, so if the Fed steps in too aggressively um, and we go into recession, that's not going to be good for Democrats either. Now, the Fed is supposed to be politically independent. They're supposed to do what they do without regard to political consequences. Um, and if people don't credibly believe that, then they they can't function, right? Like if you believe that the Fed is just a tool of the president, um, then you, you may not believe that they're going to be willing to take the punch bowl away or slam on the brakes or whatever. Um, so they have to be really careful in their messaging too. But I mean, yeah, what they do could definitely, that that's, that's the alternate scenario. Like your scenario, Ben, is essentially, um, that you know the economy normalizes and people forget about this stuff by the fall. But there are all these other paths that the, that the economy could take, um, including a particularly dire one. Like people are really negative on the economy right now, and unemployment is three point eight percent. Think about how negative they're going to be on the economy if um, unemployment shoots back up to whatever eight percent. I'm just making something up, but um, anyway. 
lots of ways for shit to go bad. Yes, yes. <laughs> they have hard jobs, the people at the Fed, so I, I don't envy them. Neither do I. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to go to some audience questions. Okay. Okay, so first up we have Michael Nelson, if I can get him up. Great, Hi, com- great discussion. Um, although we've mostly focused on confusion about macroeconomics and how that leads to bad policy and bad politics, uh, I want to focus a little bit on microeconomics and, and, and my economics. Uh, we, we hear a lot about financial illiteracy and people not knowing how to make good decisions in their personal life. Is that really a big problem? Is that, is that, a, is that a 1% problem or are people losing out, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the income that they could have. And, and I'm curious, what, what do you see the biggest problem with confused people making confused decisions? Besides journalists like yourself, who else can fix this? Uh-huh. And, and why hasn't this been fixed? I mean, we teach people how to drive. Why can't we teach them how to invest? Um, so there's an, you, you've raised an interesting set of questions. Obviously, it has real world impact when people are not financially literate. They make bad decisions in their own lives about, um, you know, how much to borrow, which loans they pay off more quickly, how they should invest their retirement accounts. You know, they 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 make lots of choices that could have real effects on their quality of life. Um, on sort of a grander scale, if people don't understand um, the basics of finances and economics, they can make bad decisions in who they vote for and have, I think, repeatedly. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's not good either, obviously. You know, there was this poll that came out recently that I was looking at yesterday from YouGov where they asked people a bunch of questions about inflation, one of which was something like, if interest rates rise, will that um, increase inflation or decrease inflation? And the, the standard answer is, if you raise interest rates, that should reduce increase, inflation. Well, but, but the people would say the opposite because yes. increasing sounds like getting bigger. Right. Um, so a plurality, I believe it was, of people said, if you raise interest rates, yeah. inflation will go up. And both um, are bad things. <laughs> so they happen together. <laughs> so, and I was looking at this and like, it's a little tempting to be like, look at these, you know, illiterate people. Like they don't even know what they're talking about, but it's like, no, I think this is a failure of the education system. It's a failure of those of us in the business of economic communication that people don't understand this. And, um, and that they're, you know, that they may not, there, there's, there are all these polls showing like they, people want the government to do more about inflation. And if they don't realize that, that, that the Fed is going to do the thing about inflation that you would prescribe, they, they think it's going to have the opposite effect, then they're going to make bad political choices, basically. Um, I think raising interest rates will still have the effect of reducing, probably it will still have the effect of reducing inflation, whatever, you know, people who responded to this poll believe, but they're going to be like more pissed off about the government for not doing what they need to do. Um, and, and it did make me reevaluate, uh, how much I should assume audiences have, how much, how much information, background information I should assume audiences have when I'm writing about some of these issues. How do you do that? I mean, I, this is an issue I struggle with all the time when I, uh, write in, you know, you, I, you solve the problem by writing for lawfare where you can just assume a certain level of legal literacy because the nature of the audience selects for it. But you always wonder, like, what's the what's the level at which you need to explain something uh, and what's the altitude that you should assume a general interest reader can it maximizes your that writing to that that altitude maximizes your value and i'm i'm curious how you assess that uh in an ongoing way i try to write things that are accessible to people who have very little background in the subject but are still interesting to people who have a lot of background in the subject and it's hard so i don't think i always succeed i'm sure i most of the time don't succeed but that is what i attempt to do it's difficult to you know always give sufficient 
background explanation on things when I when I'm writing for you know pretty confined um, word count. You know, I have 750 words. I can't like every time I talk about the Fed, I can't say. And these are the policy levers they have, and here's how interest, here's the mechanism by which interest rates, blah 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 blah. But but then I was thinking like, well, maybe I should be doing more of that. I don't know. I I, I often will embed. Maybe links. you should just have a set of explainers yeah. that live somewhere that you can that you can link to, so that whenever you say the policy levers the Fed has, there's a like yeah. a hot link to here are their policy levers. <laughs> and, and I I do that. I mean, they're not necessarily little backgrounders that I've written, but, you know, they exist in the world. The Fed has right. a, an, an FAQ on its website. It's like, what does the Fed do? And what are its tools? And what is the overnight interest rate? And blah, blah, blah. So I will link to some of that stuff. But uh, it's hard. And the constraints are not only the space that I have available, but also the tone that I want to use. Because I don't want to talk down to people, you know, by like, you know, some things that, that if you over explain, it's going to be like, well, do you, you know, the reader's going to be like, do you think I'm an idiot? Like, you don't think I know what the Federal Reserve is or, or whatever. So it is it is hard to figure out that balance. Um, I try. Some of it's through linking. Some of it's just like being very judicious about how much detail I include. Um, and there'll be certain turns of phrase that will be read very differently by someone who is... Uh, like really an expert in the issue. This, 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 this. Than someone who is not. And you want both readings to be accurate, right? I'm trying to think of a good example of this. I, I feel like I do this all the time where like I'll have some language and then an editor will, will like, you know, try to. And you say, you can't change that. That's a term of art. Yes. And I say, that's a term of art. You like, you really need to use that term. Like, I know you think this is a synonym, but it's not. It means something different. The experts will read it differently, and they'll say they'll think I made a dumb mistake. Um, and I'll, I'll, or I'll, I'll have to like take out the the verbiage altogether because I don't want to have something that's wrong. I don't want to confuse readers either. Um, so it's hard, um, but you know I, I've been doing this for a while, so I think I hope I've gotten better at figuring out how to explain these things. I picture my audience. Um, to some extent is like my mom in the sense that my mom is a smart person and she's a curious person, but she is not an expert on economics. So like, what could I write that I feel like she would get and, and think is interesting and it wouldn't just look like technical gobbledygook to her. Uh, it would be accessible. And so I guess I am assuming some like base level of of right. whatever degree well, of literacy. Well, you're assuming smart and curious, which right, are which... which many people are neither smart nor curious uh, uh, and uh, and also are not your mom. And so they don't, you know, you've got three advantages there. It's somebody right. who's She's smart, curious, and cares more than the average person about your work. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom is also smart and curious and cares about my work. And, uh, but those are three factors that don't exist for the average reader who, uh, you know, doesn't always seem to like me very much and, yeah. uh, and is maybe isn't all that smart or curious. And I, I think it's like, it's a, it's the hardest problem in technical writing for general yeah. interest audiences is like figuring out what altitude to write from. I had an English teacher in sixth grade who, um, I credit for why I became a writer. He was a fantastic teacher. Um, Andover, right? No, no, this is sixth grade. Oh, um, sorry. So, so elementary school or middle school. I was in elementary school, but in any event. Um, and, uh, you know, he drilled into us our, our gerunds and various usage and grammatical rules and, and whatever else. But one of the things that he told us was if the reader doesn't understand you, it's your fault. And uh, it's not the reader's job to try to like focus and make sense of what you wrote. It's yours. If you right. are not clear, it is your fault. And so if you don't understand Derrida, Derrida's <laughs> fault, not yours. Well, if you he have has trouble a different with, job than I do. If you have trouble sure. with Foucault, it's Foucault's fault. Those particular writers had different objectives than I do, I suppose. <laughs> But 
that is a an ethos I try to remember. I sometimes I get frustrated because I feel like people want to willfully misread what I write, or I get all these reader emails are like, "I didn't read past the first sentence, but you're totally wrong," or whatever. And I'm like, "All right, I don't know how much, you know how charitable I should be in terms of." <laughs> How much, you know, how much this is my fault versus your fault that you didn't understand what I wrote if you didn't actually read it. But that is, uh, I think, the right approach to writing, that you, you need to make yourself as clear as possible, and it is your responsibility to do it. Uh, you know, in, in terms of, like, what altitude that leaves you at, um, you know, I'm sure it depends on the subject matter right. and how much space you have. If you're... Uh, if you're writing for Lawfare, also it's a different audience, obviously, than if you're writing for a general interest newspaper. But I, you know, I try to be as I try to remember that, like, if this isn't clear, it's not the reader's fault. Like, I should I should not assume that they're going to put in the time to parse what I've said. I need to make it as easy as possible. And again, I I don't always um, meet that standard, but that's what I strive for. I love that. And as someone who has read your work, I think you are extremely clear, especially for someone who is not an economist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to bring up Richard Wattenberger. Richard Wattenberger. Hello. Famed musicologist. The floor is yours. Uh, can I be heard? Indeed. I, yep. Good. Okay, good, good. I had a problem with this before. Um, so... Uh, We've been kind of grazing around my question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, so a few days ago, Bill Crystal tweeted out that some of the roots of the inflation that we're seeing right now are to be found in the monetary policies of the previous administration. And particularly, um, I think he actually might have uh, mentioned Powell, but um, and I'm just curious, how much of, is that at all possible? And to what extent are monetary problems, in fact, driving inflation? And also, just, um, and, you know, finally, along those lines, are monetary factors really that too hard or too abstract for many people to understand, uh, even at the most basic level? I mean, I think about the, um, uh, the Weimar Republic hyperinflation, that's pretty easy to understand. But, well, it's uh, easy to understand that inflation sucks, but yeah. it's hard to f figure out what you do about it without causing a lot of other unintended consequences, like a major recession, for example. Um, so, I mean, I do think monetary policy has probably contributed to inflation in the past year. Uh, we, it, but again, like that's... It, the point of low interest rates we had we we had interest rates go down to zero very early in the pandemic the point of low interest rates was to have a lot of liquidity in the economy to 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 juice the economy when it really needed it um so it's not like it's a surprise entirely that the economy was running hot um in the past year that was the point we we wanted the economy to recover as much ground as as quickly as possible and Arguably, monetary, you know, loose monetary policy, expansionary monetary policy, whatever uh, term you want to use. Again, like these are sort of technical terms, but it's like it basically just means we had very low interest rates. Uh, it achieved its goal in getting unemployment really low very quickly. So that's good. But it had this unintended objective that was that we kind of knew was a risk. but We didn't realize it was going to be. But I say we, but like most economists didn't didn't know it was going to be as big of a risk that it also uh, juicing the economy also meant, you know, inflation went up and we, we do have this, you know, once in a generation level of inflation. So I think it's fair to say, yeah, the fed contributed to this, but they acted with the information that they had. Um, and other than like Larry Summers, <laughs> there were not a lot of people arguing that there was going to be a huge risk of, uh, price spikes a year ago and, and he was mostly arguing that about uh the, the size of the american rescue plan um but you know monetary policy and fiscal policy are they're run independently but they they do interact so um i don't remember what the re what the rest of the question was but <laughs> uh in any event yeah i mean i think that the the fed is now course correcting and they're trying to figure out how to how to course correct without sending us into recession basically 
All right, we have one more question from our audience, and here is Itamar. Itamar, it's about time. You've now asked several questions within a relatively brief period of time, and I think that means uh, you've become a regular, and so we have to get you to introduce yourself. Who the heck are you? Uh, okay, uh, my name is Itamar. Uh, well, we know that. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, it could be a screen name. No, I mean, a lot of people are going to choose a lot of screen names, but Itamar Levior? I don't think so. <laughs> so who are you? Uh, when you spend, you've been around for a few months, I think, right? Yeah, a few months. Uh, I've been kind of listening to, like, the Lawfare verse for a while. I did, I think I was first introduced in high school when I did speech and debate. And then, like, I work in tech, went to school for uh, tech. Uh, I guess if you probably guessed from my name, I'm Israeli. Um, yeah, that's a shock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, currently living in uh, in Manhattan. Uh, I was uh, wanted to see uh, Richard yesterday when he was abducted, but uh, I think ne next time he comes to Manhattan, I'll, I'll find him. Excellent. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to meet you properly, and you get the penultimate question today because i actually get the last question okay uh so i guess my, my question is about china uh there's been a lot of talk and concern about the state of the chinese economy they've like taken a lot of damage with the uh their zero covid uh zero tolerance for covid uh evergrand is kind of a big deal especially since i think like construction is like seven percent of their economy and a big driver of their growth uh, there's been like a lot of talk about like their commercial paper use, which is like kind of unregulated and like seems like it has a lot of risks. So I'm curious, like how coupled are our economies at the moment? Uh, should we be worried that the Chinese economy might collapse? And if so, would it uh, affect us greatly or less greatly? And we aren't as coupled as one might think. So it's an interesting set of issues that you raise. Um, you know, the argument used to be, or the the expression used to be that the U.S. sneezes and the world gets a cold. And um, to some extent, that's true with China now as well. The Chinese economy is integrated with a lot of other major economies around the world, not just the United States, but particularly in Asia. Um, and if, uh, if there is, uh, you know, some sort of, if there's like a you know, major economic disruption in China, yes, we will feel it. We still get a lot of imports from China, for example. Um, there has been sort of a more deliberate effort in the last few years to decouple our economic interests from China's. And, you know, you a lot of the political rhetoric about that is about onshoring, reshoring, we're going to bring back activities that have, you know, manufacturing or whatever that had been done in China to the United States. I, I think actually the bigger consequence, or the, 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 the more common, uh, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say more common, but in addition to reshoring, um, perhaps a bigger factor is the fact that companies have diversified uh, to other countries, whether it's around, you know, like maybe you used to have your refrigerator manufacturing plant in China, and then you move it to Vietnam or someplace like that. So there has been uh, an effort by a lot of companies to decouple uh, for a number of reasons, including political risk, among other things. Um, you know, it's difficult for Western companies to do business in China because it's just a really unreliable legal framework, which I used to know more about than I do now. So, uh, if, you know, there may be people watching who know a lot more about this than, I, you know, more in depth than I do. But there there have been efforts to to decouple. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't feel it if um, the Chinese economy really had some sort of major crisis. And, and we're seeing, um, you know, how dependent we are on the Chinese economy already with these COVID-related shutdowns and how that disrupts our supply chains. Um, I don't exactly know what the solution is. As I, as I may have implied, I'm a little bit skeptical of this whole, you know, like reshoring um, magic bullet because the cost structure in the United States wouldn't support moving a lot of the manufacturing, for example, that has been done in China here. Just our, our labor costs are much higher. Um, 
but you will see companies try to di- you will continue to see companies try to diversify. One other risk is that Chinese statistics are just not that reliable. Um, you know, you can complain about problems with the U.S. statistical agencies. Are we really capturing? Um, you know, fluctuations in the job market, particularly precisely because unemployment only measures people who are actively looking for work um, and leaves out all the people who are on the sidelines, you know, out of the labor force. Like there are all these technical dispute debates about how good our statistics are. But fundamentally, um, you know, we have a system in place that means that our statistical agencies are independent and they're transparent and whatever flaws they have, like they're pretty well known to the public, whereas the Chinese statistical system is kind of a black box and you can't trust a lot of the data. So I think one additional risk with doing business in China or one risk to our economy that comes from China is that we could potentially get blindsided by um, you know, some latent economic problem that's not evident from whatever the, the data that are published are. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on these things, so I don't, I don't wanna, um, you know, suggest I know more about this than I do. But the short answer to, to the question is yes. I mean, we are exposed to problems and the potential problems in the Chinese economy. And some of them are known, some of them are not entirely known, and, and some of them could take us by surprise. Um, but adapting and decoupling is, is quite difficult. So before we go, uh, I would be remiss if I did not ask you for thoughts about Fred Hyatt. Uh, Fred, I have spoken about Fred at some length on this sh- on this show, and um, uh, uh, but you are the first person we've had on since uh, he died uh, that uh, worked with him uh, uh, for as long or as closely as I did, and so uh, and actually from an even earlier stage in your career. Um, and so I'm just uh, interested for your thoughts, uh, and uh, an, enough time has gone by, I suppose, that it's uh, not inappropriate to spring it on you. Uh, whatever you got. Whatever I got. Um, I still sometimes forget a little bit that he's gone. Um, and I'll think, oh, I should send this to Fred. Oh, I, I can't, obviously. But he has had a profound effect on my career, on my character, I hope, for the better. And, um, you know, I remember thinking after he passed, we, the post opinion section was just like saturated with content about how great he was, um, how, you know, just how kind and solid of a person that he was, was this going to seem like overkill to readers, but it it really was not an exaggeration. Um, He was, he, he, he had principles and he cared about maintaining those principles. He, he stood by his people. Um, Many people have, have talked about how he was almost like a paternal figure to them. And I feel that way a little bit. I mean, I have a great relationship with my dad. So, it, you know, I think Dana Milbank wrote something about like he was Fred was sort of a, a substitute father figure. Uh, so I, you know, so I maybe I didn't feel it quite as much as, as Dana. And, and, and did. Dana and Fred are roughly the same age, I think, <laughs> which makes it a little odd. But I feel like Fred really invested in his people and pushed us to do our best work and stood by us when um, when we, we came under threat from powerful figures and, and, you know, without going too much into it, Ben knows a little bit about that with me, um, or, you know, attacks from the mob or, or whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't really, I'm trying, I'm sorry. I'm not very articulate on this, but, uh, I feel like he made me a better person. He made me a better journalist and he made me a better person. Uh, and he took a chance on me when a lot of people wouldn't. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Like he, he was yeah. known for kind of plucking young talent um, from obscurity <laughs> and supporting us and believing in us and, and making us feel like we belonged. Uh, and that, uh, and, and that the fact that he saw potential in us, I think was, um, I don't know if I want to say it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it. it but it makes a difference. Yeah. 
I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't. I. I, I don't have a better. This is not a, a eulogy deserving of Fred, but. Uh, we are I really miss le- him. I miss him a lot. We are going to leave it there, Catherine Rampell. You're a great American. Uh, it's uh, great to see your face Likewise. and hear your voice. And uh, we will be back. Uh, uh, I, I've got a countdown. 2,814 minutes from now. Yeah. And we will be with Tom Wheeler, former FCC chairman uh, and surprisingly funny guy for a telecom lawyer, <laughs> um, which is not, by the way, a field that attracts funny people. Uh, but Tom Wheeler, uh, funny guy. Enemy of Kate Klonick on all matters collegiate sports. Uh, and until then, Genevieve? Uh, we don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have faith in the Fed to avoid inflation. Without a recession. Yes. Hopefully. Yes, thank you. All right, everyone, have a great night.